not yet been glorified. One day this promise would be fulfilled, but not yet. We do find the story of the fulfillment of this promise in Scripture. And it's that fulfillment that we want to spend a few minutes talking about together this morning. Now, I am a student of history. I majored in history at the University of Texas. Now, I flipped through the handout, and if you haven't picked that up, telling about all our seniors, I encourage you to do that. They're located in the foyer. But I noticed there that no one of them is so foolish as to major in something like history. They're all very practical, you know, a PA or a, a construction management, or there were the hard sciences there. I don't remember all of them. But none of them were so foolish as to major in history. That's a good thing. Because one of the questions I got so tired of hearing when I was in college, people would ask you, well, what are you majoring in? Oh, history. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> Nothing, as it turns out. Uh, evidently. And I do understand the perception that people have of history majors. After all, you know the difference in a history degree and a large pizza, don't you? You can feed a family with a pizza. Think about that one for a minute. It means there's no jobs if you have a history degree. If I have to explain it, it's not nearly as funny. Um, at least I can go sell used cars with this jacket. <laughs> I knew some of you were thinking that, so. In all seriousness, I often try to incorporate historical backgrounds into our, our lessons, particularly in our classes, because I think that helps us to have context, to have a better understanding of some of the things that we read in Scripture. And ultimately, the reason I feel that the study of history is valuable is because, at root, it is the study of people. The names, the dates, the places, the particular events may change, but people, human nature, that's a constant. And so that helps to shed some light on our past. It helps us to have a better understanding of our present. If we understand our history, we might even be guided somewhat as we approach the future. Well, the New Testament contains a book of history, the book of Acts. And this book is unique. It's the only first century account we have of the history of the early church. It tells the story of the disciples in those earliest days after the resurrection of Jesus. It gives us an insight into their life and their faith and their practice tells about the people. But more than just those Christians, it tells us about the acts of God and what he was doing. And to be fair, unlike a lot of modern history books, this is actually a good story. You can sit down and read the book of Acts, and it's good reading. Acts begins with a connection back to Luke's gospel. Luke is the author of both of these books. And he reminds his audience about his first book, that in my previous volume, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And Jesus then spent 40 days further instructing the apostles about the kingdom of God and telling them that they were to wait in Jerusalem 
until they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. That's how Luke's gospel ends back in Luke chapter 24. Wait in Jerusalem till you receive that promise. Well, we find as Acts begins in chapter 1, it's emphasized again. Just before Christ is going to ascend up into heaven, the apostles ask him if it was time for him then to restore the kingdom to Israel. He tells them it's not their place to know the time. But, he says in verse number 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right after this, he's taken up out of their sight. So what we see is that the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts both point to this giving of the Holy Spirit as an extremely significant event. And yet I wonder if we fully appreciate the significance of this event. Did you know that today is the day of Pentecost? Probably not. We don't know our history that well. But we're seven weeks, 50 days after the anniversary of the resurrection. This marks the anniversary of Pentecost. We find the story recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, and I want us to take an unusual step this morning. You might not have ever done this, but when is the last time that you read this account? This story that is so important. Just read through beginning to end and, and recognize the power and the significance of this event. The public reading of Scripture is important. Paul encouraged Timothy to do it, 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, to give attention to it. I think we probably don't do it enough. And I asked Louise not to turn on the PowerPoint yet because I want us to just read through Acts 2 together this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open it up there. Or if you want to do more like they would have done in the early church where not everyone had a copy and you just want to sit there and listen, you can do that as well. But I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord that great comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I can say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You can turn the PowerPoint on now. I appreciate your indulgence. I, I hope you paid close attention to that reading. Acts chapter 11 and verse 15 calls Pentecost the beginning. Beginning of what? There are several important firsts that take place here in this account we just read, and we take all of them together, and it marks the beginning of a new age, the gathering of a new community. So first of all, it is the beginning of the public proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. The climax of Peter's sermon is there in verse number 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. After his resurrection, back at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus had explained that according to the scriptures, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. We noted already how Jesus said when the Spirit came on them they were to give their witness back in chapter 1 verse 8. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's exactly what Peter did in his sermon. He confirmed it there in verse number 32. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we're all witnesses. We all saw him alive. We typically use the word witness in two different senses in English. One is in the sense of an eyewitness, that is someone who sees something take place. The other is in the sense of giving testimony, that is like at a, a trial, a witness. Well, the apostles were already witnesses in the sense of eyewitnesses. They had seen the Lord both before and after his resurrection. But this is the first time that they're witnesses in the sense of giving testimony. That is telling other people about what they know about Jesus. Telling other people what they've seen. You remember Jesus wouldn't let his followers proclaim who he was, that he was the Christ publicly during his ministry. And that's probably because people wouldn't understand what that meant. Do you remember even when Peter confessed, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God? Jesus said, you're right. And then he proceeded to explain what that meant, that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. And even the apostles didn't understand that. Peter said, huh, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. Jesus had to do the work of the Christ. He had to be killed. He had to be buried. He had to be raised from the dead by God. Because of that misunderstanding of what it meant to be the Messiah, before they could go out and tell other people about it. But now it's happened. They could take the wraps off. Related to that, secondly, this is the beginning of the preaching of the gospel. The gospel had been preached before in promise to Abraham. Paul says that in Galatians 3, verse 8. The promise of the gospel, in your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. It had been preached in preparation by Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he went around preaching, repent, believe the gospel of the kingdom of God. But this is the first time it's preached as accomplished fact. You remember Paul lays out for us what 
the facts of the gospel are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's exactly what Peter's message is here in Acts 2, isn't it? That you crucified Jesus. He was buried. But death couldn't hold him. God raised him up. Only after that had been accomplished, the gospel be preached for the first time as an accomplished fact. Related to that, the significance of it, the third thing, this is the beginning of the offer of forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I read earlier Luke's account of the Great Commission, Luke chapter 24. Jesus had told the apostles that repentance and forgiveness of sins were to be preached to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Peter includes that in his sermon, doesn't he? You repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness offered in Jesus' name for the first time. This is also next. The beginning of the age of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that somewhat already. That was the promise Jesus made. And that's in particular what Peter has in mind there in Acts chapter 11 when he says Pentecost is the beginning. He's talking about Cornelius' household. And he says that the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did on us at the beginning here in Acts 2. That's what Jesus had promised telling them that they needed to wait into Jer in Jerusalem until they'd received it. And if you noticed when we were reading, Peter refers to the Holy Spirit at the beginning, the middle, and the end of his message. He says that all of these speaking in different languages that they're hearing, what does this mean? Well, this is that that was promised by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh refers to it in the middle. He says there in verse number 33 that Jesus exalted to the right hand of God has poured out the Spirit. He's the one responsible for what you're seeing and hearing. And then he alludes to it there in the end in his conclusion, the promise that he makes there. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, to those who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The Spirit here then is given and it's promised for the first time to those who put on Christ in baptism. For those who receive that forgiveness and receive that Spirit, then this is next the beginning of the gathering of the church. In Matthew's account of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus told his apostles to go and to Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You notice here we see that same sequence of events in Acts 2. Disciples are made, that is, they come to believe in Jesus. They're baptized. And then they receive further instruction, that teaching all things I've commanded you, down in verse number 42, where we cut off our reading, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we see then finally, this is the beginning of the corporate life and the worship of that church. Those who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching also devoted themselves to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. They had all things in common, it says. They sold their possessions. They provided for those in need. And verse number 46 says, Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So it's the beginning, not just of the church, but of the life of the church. The way that they lived together. And because of that, they had favor with God, with all the people. And the Lord continued to add daily those who were being saved. So I hope in our look through this text, just walking through it this morning, we've all clearly seen the significance of this event. Maybe, maybe we've come to appreciate it in a way we haven't before. I, I don't know if reading through it is something that's useful to you. I, I find it useful for me. This is a great day, Pentecost. It occurred in a great city, Jerusalem. There was a great sermon preached by the Apostle Peter. A great crowd heard him speak. And there was a great response. 3,000 people were added to the church. That's a glorious beginning. But here's the point this morning, the whole reason for this lesson and what I want you to take home with you. As important as this beginning was, this was only the beginning. This story isn't over. And this story, this Pentecost, doesn't belong only to those who were there in Jerusalem on that day 2,000 years ago. It's not just something, if you think about history, as something to be relegated to a dusty old book or taught by some football coach back in high school. I can say that since my brother's not here today. If you think that, then you have a misunderstanding of what history is all about. This is our story. This is our history. We are part of this. And the church that meets here in Liberty, Texas today in 2018, this is just as much our story as it is the story of those who were there that day in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We heard that same message. Jesus, the Son of God, crucified raised up, sitting at the right hand of God, enthroned there, given power and authority. We had that same offer of forgiveness of sins that we received through repentance and through baptism. We responded. We were added to the church. So this story is our story. It's our history. And I want to challenge you this morning. If you've never come to Christ, if you've never made this story your story, I want you to come and become part of God's story today. You've heard that same gospel message. Make that same obedient response. If you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, I hope our message today has called you to remember who you are and who we all are as a people. We're all going out and writing new pages in our story each and every day. Especially those who are graduating now, you're about to add whole new chapters to your story. Maybe when you look at this and you look at that life of the early disciples and how they were devoted to the life of the church, how they cared for the needy, how they were praising God, how their whole life revolved around their relationship with the brothers and sisters in Christ and with Jesus himself, Maybe you see some sort of disconnect between your own story and theirs. 
Maybe you realize you need to make changes this morning. If we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.